those of you that are still straggling around. We'll get started in just a moment. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we open up with some prayer? Father, thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to worship you collectively as a body. Father, I trust that our worship did not begin this morning. Lord, I, I pray and hope that each day we see our lives as acts of worship to you. Lord, from when we wake up, so we go to sleep as we function as moms and dads, husbands, wives, co-workers, as your children sent out into a world to, to bring hope and truth. Father, that's what we're looking at this morning as we open up your word. We're, we're looking at the importance of truth in a world that believes that there is no absolute truth. I pray that, Lord, as we, as we look at your word today, that your spirit would touch our hearts. God, I pray that you would challenge us where challenge is needed, that, Lord, you would uplift us where maybe we're weak. But through it all, that you would help us to see your greatness, the greatness of your message, and the incredible privilege that we have as your children to bring that message to a world that is lost, and dying and going to hell. So Lord, help us to be sober as we look at your word. But Lord, help us to be expectant because you are at work. So Lord, I pray that you would use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last couple of weeks that I've had the opportunity to uh, share God's word with you, We've been looking at 2 Timothy, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, we're going to be in chapter 4 today. The message that Timothy has received from Paul, who writes this letter to him, and remember it's Paul's last letter that we have in the epistles, is written around AD 67, and it was written to Timothy in a time when the persecution of the church was really at an all-time high. Uh, Nero was the Roman emperor. He was not fond of Christians, and in fact, he had used Christians as his scapegoat, which resulted in a mass persecution, mass arrests, and even death. I'm not going to get back into all of that, but as Paul is writing to Timothy, there's been a common theme really that started in the book of 1 Timothy and is carried over now to 2 Timothy, and that is to fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. When you think of a fight, there are different words that might come to mind when you, when you look at the actual Greek construction of that word. It has the idea of a struggle or a race. This arduous task that God has placed before us to stand firm. Timothy is probably in his 30s and he's overseeing a large church in Ephesus, the body that is there, not a church building as we see it, but they probably met house to house. Probably given the circumstances, it wasn't uh, something that was broadcasted on a bulletin, um, but it was something that spread from brother and sister throughout the town so they could support and encourage one another. The hard part that we have as we look at a, a passage like this is, for me, has been to really conceptualize the significance of what's going on in those days because as Americans, we have no idea what it's like to be in the shoes that they were in in those times. We don't really know what persecution looks like. We haven't felt it. We can see it as we look around the world today. We talked about that last week, that from 2013 to 2015, the numbers increased from 2,100 people that were killed for their faith to almost three times that. just in the span of two years. I don't know about you, but I often wonder what that, what that means for us. We look at our news and we look at our times. And Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that 
Timothy, you need to realize that in the last days, difficult times will come. He goes on and he talks in verse 13, which we saw last week, and he said, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It is not a picture that things are going to get better. That can be pretty dreary, right? Like, oh man, here comes that message. Things are going to get worse. Persecution's coming. Paul said in chapter 3, verse 12, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself said it in John chapter 15, that if they hated him, they will hate you also. It's not something we have to look for. It's a natural result of living for Jesus. And we have been blessed to live in a country that allows us to exercise our freedom to worship. But as you look at the news and you look at the times, I believe that those times may be coming to an end maybe sooner than later. In Ravi Zacharias' book, Deliver Us From Evil, he wrote in 1996. Uh, anybody ever read anything by Ravi Zacharias? It's kind of heavy. Yeah, try. He's heavy. Uh, sometimes I have to read the same paragraph like five times just to understand what he just said. But this book that he wrote in 96, Deliver Us From Evil, the, the whole premise of the book is to challenge the American church to wake up, to open up their eyes and see the danger that's before them. Now, this was 20 years ago. And his point and his theme of the, the, the book, really, is to say that if, if we look at the, the powers of history that ruled, their demise and their fall had nothing to do with economic struggle, though that was part of it. It really had nothing to do with being conquered by another great world power. His challenge is that their demise really came from the fact that they were spiritually and morally corrupt. They were godless. And his challenge is that if we do not learn from the past, we are condemned to repeat it ourselves. And in that, we have a quote coming up here. I'm going to kind of walk you through it because... Like I said, I had the benefit of reading this all week. You have the, the benefit of reading it right now. But he looks at Canada, and Canadian historian David Marshall lists the conditions that gradually made the social climate in Canada inhospitable to the Christian message. These conditioning influences are not restricted to Canada alone. They are true for much of the West. The increase in scientific knowledge and the philosophy that was smuggled with it the shifting focus of intellectual life and its, this worldly expertise, the rise of a consumer culture, the emergence of an urban industrial society, and the struggle of the church to cope with a rapidly changing world, all of these factors energize a world moving at high speed. Marshall lays a major portion of the blame for the slide into secularism, that you could say the slide into becoming worldly, he lays the blame at the door of the Christian clergy. It was from their ranks, he says, that the defection began. From their ranks came the call to congregations to abandon the notion of the authoritative scripture and surrender the biblical perspective of life's deepest questions. This was an explosive force that would demolish any claim to Christian uniqueness. Do you understand that God's word is the foundation on which we stand? And that if we remove the word of God and its influence, we have nothing to stand on. We live in a culture and a society today that believes that truth is not absolute, but truth is relative. And by that I mean what you believe and what you believe and what I believe may all be completely different and yet we're all right. On the surface, that makes zero sense, doesn't it, really, when you think about it? But that is what we have become. We call it tolerance. It sounds like a nice word. I'll tolerate you. But really what it is, is it's a slide away from the authority of Scripture as being absolute truth. And Paul, in his time here to Timothy, he's challenging him with the very same thing because he has seen brothers and sisters in Christ stray from the faith under the current conditions of persecution and turn their backs on truth 
to myths and fables that we're going to see today that satisfied their needs as they saw it, but walked away from what God had intended for them. Ravi Zacharias continues and he says, Here then is the terrible disappointment to Christians. Betrayal, listen to this, betrayal came from their own educated ranks as some in leadership succumbed to and even joined forces with skeptics, giving strength to the tentacles of secularism to gradually choke out religious life. Secularizing voices among the clergy berated the conservative authorities and institutions for not giving free vent to those of a liberal stripe. Once that openness was granted and liberals had gained power, those same voices counted with great bigot- greater bigotry to block out any conservative view. Since then, there has been made, at best, a patronizing provision for the conservative as a marginalized viewpoint. He said the church, to try to appease people, started to open themselves up to say, all right, we'll, we'll listen to your voice. We'll hear what you have to say. And they gave him a forum. And look what happens with a shift. Marshall's thesis, singling out the clergy, is disheartening and incomprehensible to those who cherish their sacred call to ministry as stewards of the word of God. But those from within the church who called for a watered-down scriptural authority hailed the capitulation of the Christian message to contrary philosophies as the triumph of reality over religion. They let circumstances dictate God's word rather than let God's word dictate circumstances. Conservative scholars all of a sudden for whom the scriptures were absolute were left with the staggering task of their defense, a monumental responsibility with limited access. There was a foothold that was given to allow voice to untruth. And before they knew it, the untruth had grown to the point where truth was hard to speak no longer accepted. It was no longer wanted in the very forms in which untruth was first allowed to step in. It's happening in our colleges and our schools today. It's happening through social media every day. There's propaganda all over the place that is not biblical and is not truth. It's entering your homes at a rate that we don't even recognize. As followers of Christ, we must stand on truth. Or else we will be swept away like Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. The wise man built his house upon the rock, but the foolish man built his house on the sand. Timothy is facing the same challenging times at a level that's beyond where we are today, but at a level that perhaps we might see should the Lord tarry. Paul is imprisoned and is soon to die. We see that really full full force here in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 if you haven't turned in your Bibles there. And the challenge to Timothy is to preach God's word to stand on God's word, to hold to God's word. We saw last week in chapter two, excuse me, chapter three, verses sixteen through seventeen, that all scripture is what? It's God breathed. The very word of God you and I hold in our hands. And it's profitable for teaching, for corre- for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's this very word that we have to bring to a world that wants to hear no truth. So our charge this morning is to preach the word until our final breath. So verse 1, chapter 4, Paul begins and he says, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
We're going to have two main points this morning. The first one is that I want you to see is that we need to share the message of truth with those around of it, around us. We need to share the message of truth with those around us. Paul begins with the authority. Where's his authority come from? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't stand there and strong arm Timothy, does he? He doesn't give him a guilt trip. Timothy, I've invested so much of my time into your life. It would it would just crush my heart if you fell away. While those things are true, what does he point to as his authority? I charge you in the presence of God. With God as our authority, with God as the one that ultimately is sovereign over all, all things, Timothy, I charge you to preach the word of God. It almost gives you a, a scene here of, of, of a court case or a legal case. With God as witness, Timothy, with God watching over you, I charge you. Preach the word of God. Well, what credentials does God have? We probably don't have to go through this, right? But I charge you in the presence of God and also of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. There will be a time when Christ comes back again. Just as the prophecies in the Old Testament pointed to the coming of the Messiah, we have prophecies in the Old and the New Testament that point to the glorious fact that Jesus is coming back. I would bet my house on that. I would bet my life on that. That's what Paul's charging Timothy with. He's coming back again. There's also a sobering thought to that, isn't it? Judgment. In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, we're reminded that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I don't profess to understand all of the end times or what glory will look like. There are some pretty basic snippets that I do know. And one of them is that I will stand before God someday. And I will give an account. And because of the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ, I will enter into heaven uncondemned. But I also give an account for what I have and have not done while I lived for him and served him on this earth. solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and also by his appearing in his kingdom. It's not a myth, it's not a fable. God's kingdom is coming. Jesus is coming. And in light of those facts, in light of those truths, Timothy, I challenge you, preach the word of God. Now, for some of you, when you hear the word preach, you think, well, I can step back, right? I'm not a preacher. I don't have to stand up there like you do. You may not have the spiritual giftedness to preach or the calling to preach in ministry, but the word preach literally just means to be a herald, to proclaim the word of God. And while that was a role that Timothy filled in a leadership role, it's a role that I challenge you, instead of kicking your feet back, and zoning out for the next 15 minutes, you sit up and realize that each and every one of us are called to be heralds of God's word. To preach God's word to those around us. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Hold your place in 2 Timothy because we'll be returning there. But turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. This is a challenge that's applicable to moms and dads teaching their kids, grandmothers and grandfathers teaching their grandchildren. It's applicable to you and your workplace as you interact with people that need to know who Jesus is. It's applicable in your neighborhood. It's applicable when you get out of here and you are standing in the line at Hannaford and God brings somebody across your path and you have the opportunity to speak truth to them. You and I represent 
God to a world that needs to hear truth. Beginning in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes and he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. As you have been reconciled to Christ through the blood of Jesus, sins have been paid for, eternal hope in heaven, you now represent Christ before others to bring that same message of reconciliation. That same hope. Paul goes on to say that therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Just like we have ambassadors to the UN that represent our country, you and I are ambassadors of Christ representing Him before the world. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Think about the magnitude of that task for a minute. You and I are ambassadors of Christ to bring a message of reconciliation to a world that is lost, and broken. It's pretty overwhelming, isn't it? I don't know about you, but it used to terrify me. I was terrible at talking to people about Christ. Absolutely terrible. I used to pray and pray and pray that Lord, the Lord would help me grow in that area because, man, I stunk. Uh, unless you came and asked me to tell you about Jesus, it was really hard for me. Maybe that's some of you out here this morning. You sit there and say, yeah, just terrified i know i'm supposed to i believe everything that you just read but to preach god's word to share god's word with people to be a herald for god is not something that comes easy to me let me suggest to you that there's no magic formula to it first of all some of us feel like well you know you went to bible college had four years to train you're equipped now no i don't see anything in scripture that says you have to go to school to be a herald of God's word. You know what you have to do? You just have to live your life for Christ. And it flows out of you. It's a natural response that his children have when they're living for him. Because as the joy of Jesus fills your heart, it starts to bubble out. And you can't help it. As you start to surrender to God's will and say, God, use me as you see fit. As you drive to work that morning, instead of listening to the radio, you turn off from it and just say, God, help me today. Help me to see how you want to use me. Show me the opportunities you bring before me this morning and help me to take advantage of them. And then wait and see what God happens. Just wait to see what God does. It's pretty exciting. Like, if, if you hate work, Work can be hard, right? Some of us don't really like our jobs. Uh, I deal with people that like to fling uh, excrement sometimes, and it's not always the most pleasant of things. I get called names that can't be repeated sometimes. I see brokenness all the time. It's pretty disheartening. But I can tell you I pray every single day that God would help me see the opportunities he brings my way and that he would use me for his glory. And sometimes even like yesterday when I have a lousy attitude, God brings somebody my way at just the right time. And he puts them in my life so I can speak truth to them. I was talking with a gentleman last night. I, had, I do Bible study on Saturday nights down at the pre-release center at the jail. And uh, it was funny because I had had this conversation with a guy a few weeks back, and he hadn't been coming to Bible study. I didn't know anything about him except he's really tall. He's got size 18 feet. And uh, we were talking one day, and he said, yeah, I, I used to work with, with youth in a church out 
in the central U.S. somewhere. He said, but I, I really went off track. I really went off track. And he's invested in a life that is sad. He's addicted to things other than Jesus. And so we talked about the Lord for a little bit, and I, I said, you know, we got Bible study on Saturday nights. Why don't you why don't you come? He said, Well, kind of scared. I haven't really talked to the Lord in a while. Afraid what he might do, what he might say. Alright, I, I get that. We talked about that and the last two weeks he's been coming. <laughs> the first day last week when he came, it was kind of funny, he came up to me, he's like, Robert, I'm gonna come. He's like, but if I get up and leave in the middle of whatever you're doing, he's like, don't be offended. Just, I won't be able to handle it. And at the beginning of every Bible study, we have a time where we talk about God sightings and just share what God's been doing in their lives because I want them to see that God has an active part in their life every single day, even though they don't see it necessarily. And his God sighting this week was, hey, I made it through your, I made it through your Bible study last week. He's like, I didn't get up once. He's like, I was ready to run, but I didn't. And he's like, I'm back here again this week. So after Bible study, I was outside just shooting some hoops out in the, the light rain. And he's not a ball player, which is too bad with his size. Um, but he came out, and we had a God-ordained talk. He didn't come out because he wanted to shoot hoops. He just came out because he wanted to talk. He didn't come out because I invited him. But I was there, and I was available. And we talked about him getting out, and we talked about God's truth and the importance of building his life on truth again and the foundation that that would be. I didn't have to look for the opportunity. I just had to seize it when God brought it before me. The challenge to preach God's word is just simply living your life for Jesus every day. And when he brings those people across your path, share truth with them. How do you do it? Well, he, first of all, he says, be ready in season and out of season, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready at all times. First Peter chapter 3, if you turn forward to the right just a little bit, we'll look at this passage. First Peter chapter 3. Hebrews, James, First Peter. Peter, writing under similar circumstances, to believers that are scattered abroad because of persecution is ch charging them to stand firm in their faith. We see that theme in chapter 5. But in verse 13 of chapter 3, he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always, here it is, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Never really struck me before until just now, but look at that. Not just give a defense, but give a defense for what? the account of the hope that is within you. Do we live in hopeless times? We do, don't we? We live in hopeless times. I was talking to another individual, and the re he said, you know, the reason I, I use drugs, he says, is because it kills my emotions. I'm afraid to deal with the things that life brings me, and drugs kill my emotions. And he's been in our program for a while and he's, he's, in a, he's in a sober state and I pray for him. But I won't give you his name, but pray for him because we've had some opportunities to talk about the Lord, but he's, he's, his heart's still hardened. But he said, Robert, he's like, I haven't cried before until the last couple of months. And he got a message from somebody close to him and he said, I couldn't stop crying. And he's like, I was terrified. Like, what was happening to me? He needs hope. He needs hope. 
you and I have hope, don't we? Through Jesus Christ. I can bet that every single person in this room knows somebody that needs hope. We have that message. Be ready in season and out of season at all times. To be able to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, you also have to be a person of God's word. It is hard for the Holy Spirit to draw to mind the things that you've read, the things that you've studied if you've never studied them, correct? Let's be a people of God's word. You cannot speak the truth of God's word into somebody unless you've been feeding yourself the truth of God's word. Feed yourself the truth of God's word. Be ready in season, out of season, and be ready to do what? The first thing he says is to reprove. We saw this word last week. It's the idea of to expose or to convict. We talked about how it's kind of the, God's word is kind of the x-ray in our life. It shows us the areas that are wrong in our life that he wants to correct, that he wants to fix. Challenge to expose, to reprove. The second thing he says is to rebuke. Folks, let's call sin a sin. Let's call sin a sin. If there's sin in somebody's life, let's call it for what it is. Challenge, change, when change needs to take place. Tolerance in our society says, oh, you know, that's just how you are. It's okay, I love you anyway. God's word says, yeah, that's how you are, but because I love you, I'm not going to let you stay that way. Let's call sin a sin. Rebuke. He also challenges us to exhort. Aren't you glad that it's not just, let me show you what's wrong with you, let me tell you what's wrong with you, and leave you there? Let me encourage you, let me exhort you how to grow. Let me point you to Jesus and his redemption and his dying work on the cross that is still the grace that works in your life every single day to give you strength to overcome. Exhort, encourage, build up. If you are somebody that merely points out the faults of people and you think you are God's gift to let people know how wrong they are, I challenge you that you are wrong yourself. Encourage. If we break down but we do not build up, you are not exhibiting the love of Christ to people. But we are also wrong if we think we are loving people because we simply encourage them without pointing truth to their souls in the areas that God wants to change. We must do both. You know, in John chapter 1, it says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And in our minds, sometimes we separate those as two different entities, don't we? God's grace, God's truth. And yet Jesus embodied them both like this. You cannot have truth without grace, and you cannot have grace without truth. And if you simply speak truth without grace, it really is not truth at all. And if you merely give grace without truth, that is not grace either. I am not loving you if I fail to help you in your struggles against sin, which I also struggle against myself. We have to have both. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and do so with great patience and instruction. I'm appreciative that Paul added great before patience. Do so with great patience and instruction. It's not just patience that we need when we work with people sometimes, right? Or when people work with us, sometimes we're the result, right? People are coming to us and they're trying to help us grow in the Lord. We need great patience. And I don't know about you, but I think of my kids and I think some days I have good patience. Some days I have a little patience. There are some moments when I have no patience. God, help me to have great patience. God, help us to have great patience as we speak your word into the lives of people. 
I work in a pretty disheartening environment sometimes. I feel like sometimes if God's word were a ball and I was trying to, all I had to do was smash through that wall with a ball and I would infiltrate the heart of people, throwing the ball as hard as I can, and what, what's happening? Just bouncing right back. I wind up and I throw it again and it bounces right back. And the hardness of their hearts, I feel like sometimes I just, you just don't get through. You have the message of truth and it seems so clear to you and to me, but to them it's just not hitting. It's not penetrating. We need to have great patience. We need to continue to instruct and to give them God's word and to feed them. But in that great patience, ultimately we are waiting on the Lord change their heart. If you were a heart changer, you would be a multi-billionaire. You're not. I'm not. God is. God, help us to have patience when we deal with people. Whether it's an unbeliever or it's a believer that's struggling with truth. Some of you have been praying for people that have strayed from God's truth. You know that they have the same foundation that Paul told Timothy he had from his grandmother and his mother. But they're not walking with the Lord right now. Have great patience. Continue to instruct as God gives opportunity. But pray that God will change their heart. You know, that's why we pray. We, we pray at the, the first of the month. In this church, we have a little meeting downstairs as people are having refreshments. That's why we pray. We don't pray because it's an added benefit, something extra we want to do because, you know, our Sundays just weren't full enough already. We pray because we recognize that only God can change people's hearts. Friends, if we are not praying, we will not see change. Because only God can bring about change. Why do we preach the word? Well, Paul says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will literally heap up for themselves people that feed their own appetites. They will pursue that which sounds good to them. There is plenty out there that you can choose from if you're looking for somebody to feed your ego, to make you feel good. If you're feeling bad about sin, it's because you should feel bad about sin. This gentleman I t- told you about, I had the conversation with last night, he said, I just feel so guilty. And I said, you should feel guilty. You've sinned against God but you should also recognize that God's grace is there to pick you up. There are people out there that they don't want to hear that first part. Guilty, conviction. We don't like that, do we? So we go after things that make us feel good about ourselves and we accumulate teachers for ourselves that are going to feed us the right things and we associate with friends that, you know, they're just going to tell you all the time how great you are. Oh, you're just, you're amazing. You're too hard on yourself. They're going to look for myths and fables. William Barclay said, The tragedy of life and of the world is not that men do not know God. The tragedy is that knowing Him, they still insist on going their own way. The tragedy of life and the world is not that men do not know God. The tragedy is that knowing Him, they still insist on going their own way. Turn ahead again, uh, Second Peter this time, real quick, chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. Peter's writing and he says, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you, are, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by the way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
Peter tells them, listen, we didn't just make up a story for you that sounded good, and all of a sudden thousands of people started believing in it. We witnessed the truth of Jesus Christ with our own eyes. We saw His healing miracles. We saw Him crucified on the cross. We saw Him raised from the dead in bodily form. We saw Him ascend into heaven. And we heard His words that He's coming back again. So I'm telling you today that Jesus Christ is no myth. Jesus Christ is truth. Don't follow myths. Follow truth. Speak truth. Live truth. Believe truth. Instead, in verse 5, we need to be sober. Be sober in all things. The idea of being sober is the idea of being self-controlled. Uh, Ephesians 5.18, better, better idea than self-controlled because we have to realize that we can't, God must. Is being spirit-controlled. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. When you're drunk, Paul says, you're out of control, right? You don't have control of your faculties. Instead, I want you to be spirit-controlled. I want God's Spirit to have first reign in your life. Be sober. Be mindful. Be prepared. Do the work of an evangelist. We may not be evangelists in the sense of the spiritual giftedness like it's spoken of in Ephesians 4.11, but we're all called to evangelize, correct? To be bringers of good news. Do we see the hopelessness and brokenness of those around us? And does that spur us on to share the truth of Christ with them? One of the things I love about my wife, I'm going to pick on her for a moment, even though you already did it earlier, um, just love her heart. I love her heart. She's a blubbering mess sometimes, though. Uh, it, and it's amazing to me. It's really cool because it, it's a sensitivity that I wish God would create in me a little bit more sometimes. I'll come home and she'll start talking about she's been watching the Olympics and the stories of these different people. And she's like, I just started crying. I heard their story and I just started crying. I want God to help me to see people the way that he sees people. I want my heart to break for their story the way God's heart breaks for their story. I want to love them. I want to see that their soul is precious to Jesus just as much as mine has been. D.L. Moody said, I look upon the world as a wrecked vessel. It's ruin coming nearer and nearer, and God has given me a lifeboat and said to me, Moody, save all that you can. Our world is a wrecked vessel. It's sinking. Romans 8 says that, right? Our world is going to fall apart. The earth itself is going to not be standing forever. Save all that you can. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Complete what God has called you to do. Use the giftedness that God has given you and use it to its fullest. Are you using God's gifts that he's given you? The beauty of the body is we are a network of believers that all need to use our giftedness for this body to be what it can be. Your gift is as important as my gift is to the body of Christ. And you may never step foot up here. You may never teach a class. But if you have the gift of service, serve. Fulfill your ministry. If you have the gift of encouragement, encourage. Fulfill your ministry. Whatever your gift is, do it to the fullest. Lastly, we need to stay the course till our final breath, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. Stay the course till your final breath. 
our lives, our offerings to God. I'm not going to turn there, but a couple passages that are good to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are what? Temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Glorify God in your body. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're reminded that we're supposed to offer ourselves up as spiritual sacrifices of worship that are acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world. Offer yourself. Paul's testimony is living proof, isn't it? He's literally, the the picture here is he's poured the offering of his body out as a sacrifice, just like in the Old Testament picture. The blood of the Lamb. He's poured it out for the work of Jesus Christ. I don't know the exact day or the time frame, but we know that it's probably maybe just a few months until Paul literally is done. And God calls him to glory. When he writes this to Timothy, that, that this gives the magnitude of this letter, doesn't it? This isn't just a cordial challenge. This is life. And he says, fight the good fight. Fight the struggle. Run the race. It's the idea of competing in the games, just like the Olympics. For in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, to you as well, as followers of Christ. It's the idea of perhaps this, I, I don't understand a lot of the end stuff. I don't know if we're going to have a literal crown or if it's a figurative term. I was talking to a, a gentleman that... Uh, is an elder in another church and uh, he was t- talking about how he wanted to do a message on glory and, and what what is going to be our, our gift in glory and the result of our works here on earth and what that will lead to for, for reward and I, I said I, I don't know I don't, I don't know what God's system is for that I don't really care maybe that's wrong and if it is I apologize but my reward's Jesus. And if I wear five crowns, I'm probably just going to fall off my head as I bow to him anyway. But what Paul's saying is that, at the very least, what I know is he's saying there's something so much greater coming. And as hard as life can be, if we remember that there's something so much greater coming, it keeps us going, doesn't it? That it's worth it. That what you have through Jesus Christ is imperishable, will not fade away, and you'll have an eternity enjoying. Fight the good fight. We need to believe and live the truth of Colossians 1, 28 and 29, where Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving, this is really important, striving according to his power. That word striving is the same word we see fight in this passage, but striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Our ability to fight the good fight, our ability to stand on God's truth, simply comes from God's enablement. If you walk out today and you feel like you're going to just pull up your bootstraps and uh, be a little bit tougher, it's not going to work. But if you walk out today and you say, God, by your grace, I want to finish strong for you. I want to stand on truth for you. I want to live for you. Help me. And you're right where you need to be. So will we preach the word of God? Will we stand on truth when other people turn away? The darkness will continue to grow, but I can assure you that with Christ as our strength, it will not overwhelm. We live in a time when truth needs to be in the forefront. 
and for truth to be in the forefront, God, in some crazy plan, has chosen you and I to be the bearers of that truth. That's an awesome responsibility. It's a life-changing responsibility. Not just for ourselves, but for those that God brings us in contact with. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be grounded in your word. The promises of it. The commandments of it. God, may your word impact our hearts. That we might be an impact the hearts of others as you work through us. Lord, there's a lot in our world today that promises great things. Paul would call them myths. Ear-tickling. And God, I confess that we buy into it sometimes. Even as believers. God, help us to be on guard. Help us to remember the truth of your promises. When we're tempted to stray, God, infuse life through your word into our souls. May brothers and sisters in Christ come beside us. Challenge us where challenge is needed. Lord, love us in the midst of that challenge. God, we want to finish strong. We want to get before you, as it says in Matthew 25, and someday hear you say, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. But we need your help. So I pray, Father, that you would give us all that we need and you would help us to live with hope and expectancy each and every day about what you want to do in us and through us through the power of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.